0: Welcome to the USCCB First Freedom Podcast. I'm Aaron Matthew Weldon.
1: And I'm Mary McCleskey.
0: Catholic Christianity uh, embraces the whole of the human experience. And so the Church's work, whether in political advocacy or Catholic education or in activities related to our public worship, all of these things need to reflect a holistic, integrated approach to the world. Today we want to talk with one of our bishops about how religious freedom intersects with some other aspects of Catholic life. Joining us is Most Reverend James Conley, Bishop of Lincoln. Bishop Conley is chair of the Subcommittee for the Defense of Marriage, and he is also a consultant to the Committee for Religious Liberty. It's great to have you here. I know your schedule is packed when you come to Washington, so thank you for taking the time to join us. Happy to be here, Aaron and Mary, and I've been looking forward to being with you on this podcast. Well, so I want to talk about some areas of ministry that I know are important to you, uh, liturgy, education, and obviously marriage, given given your work with the conference. And just reflect a little bit about uh, how your attention to those areas intersects with our promotion of religious liberty. At first, I think it's appropriate to start with liturgy. Uh, Your work first came to my attention actually when I worked in a different office, Uh, A colleague of mine, a friend down the hall, sent me an article about your initiative in Lincoln to encourage priests in your diocese to celebrate the Mass, Ad Orientum, uh, during Advent. First, perhaps you could explain what that means, even, Uh, and then could you just talk a little bit about why you undertook that initiative? Sure. Well, Ad Orientum literally
2: means to the East, to the Orient, and uh, it's a liturgical term, um, because we look to the east, we look to the rising of the sun in anticipation of the, the coming of Christ. And throughout our, our tradition, throughout the, the history of the church, uh, th- and you can see this in the scriptures, you can see it uh, in the church fathers, you can see it throughout uh, the history of theology, is that there is this, um, there's this idea that we, we look to the east, we look to the rising sun to anticipate the coming of Christ. And so our liturgy, for example, we're, you know, we're, we're always looking towards the coming of Christ, the second coming. And so ad orientum in the technical sense, uh, liturgically, means um, you know looking towards the east for the coming of Christ. And when we celebrate the mass, we always are oriented towards the liturgical east. doesn't necessarily mean that we're facing east because a lot of churches are built. Right. But many, many churches were built specifically so that the celebrant would be facing the east. Now, um, that term, ad orientum, uh, is also looked at as towards God, the coming of God. So you can see ad deum is another other other way to, to talk about that. And the idea of, in the celebration of the Mass, is that the priest is standing in solidarity with the people facing the altar, which represents God. So that we're all together facing the same direction, anticipating the coming of Christ, the resurrection, and the priest then representing the people is offering the sacrifice to God in solidarity with everyone uh, facing the Lord. And so therefore, you know, everybody is, is, is oriented to the altar, mm-hmm. facing God. And so, um, you know, being a convert to the Catholic faith, um, when I became a Catholic, I was a junior in college and... I had an experience of, um, of spending some time at a Benedictine monastery uh, in France for um, a number of months. And that was the way they celebrated Mass uh, in this monastery. And it just struck me as, as very um, symbolic of what we all should be doing. Even the priest mm-hmm. is looking towards the coming of Christ. So reading you know authors like Benedict Sixteenth, Cardinal Ratzinger before... Uh, and other liturgical authors talk about this idea because it was only changed at the Second Vatican Council that the, that the church allowed the priest to face the people versus populum mm-hmm. but um but the tradition has been you know to be together facing the altar ad deum or ad orientum and i decided that i would i I'd actually did this when i was a priest uh, in the 1990s in wichita at the university parish i asked the University college students, if they thought that would be uh, an interesting thing to try, and so we did it. So in the 90s, I was celebrating Mass ad Orientum before it really became popular in other places. But um, but when I came to Lincoln, we we did that, and um, we do it during during Advent mm-hmm. because that's the most symbolic time when the coming of Christ, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. we're looking to the east to like like the wise men, you know, from the east. But um, but I do it now every time I celebrate Mass in the cathedral or the the seminary or the Newman center or places where, um, you know, where, uh, we're, we're we're able to do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And a lot of my priests have followed
0: suit. Um, Okay. Well, that's what, when I first heard that you were doing that, um, especially doing it at Advent, because I think a lot of people, if they've never seen or participated in a mass, um, like celebrated that way, uh, it, it, may still seem kind of like they may be intimidated by by it but to suggest trying it out during this particular season, especially one that's so fitting, uh, I just thought that seemed like a very good idea and, and it's interesting to hear you say that when you tried it as a priest you kind of talked first to the to the students to kind of get a sense for would they be willing to to try it out because I think sometimes people, you're just not so sure. They, they, it's it seems like it's something really strange. Uh, you kind of have to ease people into trying these sorts of things. I think.
2: Correct. Correct. I, I tell my priests, you know, you have to give the catechesis behind it because otherwise it's too much, it's too drastic of a change. People say, "What? Why has he got his back toward us? You know, right, he doesn't. Right. That's like you always see. He's turned his back on us. You know." And it's no. And, and if you explain it, I've found if you explain it to the people, they get it and mm-hmm. they and they embrace it. You know, and I haven't really had any. Of the faithful, um, if it's done well, if it's if proper catechesis, they understand the meaning and the symbol and the symbolism. And for the priest and the bishop, in my case, it really does focus us on what we're doing at the altar. Mm-hmm. It's less distracting in many ways, and it really focuses on the action of the mass because mm-hmm. we're looking right at you know at what we're doing, and we don't, we're not looking out into the audience or the congregation.
0: Right, right. Well, I wonder. Um, you mentioned. Uh, uh, benedict the 16th um you know he's one of the more well-known authors who who discussed um celebrating out oriental and as and as cardinal rotzinger in spirit of the liturgy i'm curious and, and i have to admit that i'm just being a little selfish because i wrote my doctoral dissertation on joseph Ratzinger, uh, so that's part of the reason kind of like well you i've got you here i'm going to ask you this uh you know how else has um I'm curious if there are other ways that particular work might have inspired you. I mean, he also talks about the importance of beauty in the liturgy or the importance of art. Um, And that kind of also relates to some other things we want to talk about. I wonder if you might say a little bit more about um, how Spirit of the Liturgy spoke to you. Spirit of the Liturgy obviously was taken from the
2: famous work by Romano Guardini, um, which I think we're celebrating 50 years or so there's a celebration this coming year, I think, on the on the anniversary of, of that famous work. Um, but, um, and of course, then Cardinal Ratzinger, Pope Benedict XVI, took took that title and wrote his own book, kind of an expanded version of it. But one of the things about that work, and, and just all of the writings, really, of Pope Benedict, is that um, he has a great sense of the transcendence. And we all have that in our hearts. The human person is is created for god you know and uh and as saint augustine says our hearts are restless until they rest in god and so we all have this yearning for the other we all have this yearning for something more and when we have opportunities or experiences which lift us out of this world to think about the permanent things um, to give us that sense of wonder Mm -hmm. at at what's beyond then it's a satisfaction of the soul that we all long for. Mm-hmm. The liturgy does it in the best way because literally we are taken out of this world. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the cosmic liturgy is, is really kind of the, the, uh, here on earth the way we can participate in the liturgy in heaven. But also beauty can do that. And it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be in the context of liturgy. It can be when we experience uh, a beautiful piece of art a beautiful painting or mosaic or stained glass window, or when we're out in nature, we experience the beauty of a sunset, or uh, at night, uh, in, the, in, in looking up at the stars in mm-hmm. and, and a clear night and, and just kind of wondering, you know, about the, the universe and, and how it, all this stuff works, you know, and where did it come from and who keeps it going, and all those kind of questions which we need to think about. Mm-hmm. And in our world, our really kind of technocratic world, which is really focused on, on such a, a specialization in, in many ways of whatever we're doing, There's so much distraction and noise in the world that we really don't have those opportunities too often to be removed from our technology and removed from the things that are all around us all the time, whether it be work or at home or at school, that we need those opportunities to lift us. Music can do that. Poetry can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, all these things can do that. And that's where I think Cardinal Ratzinger speaks about beauty as, you know, leading us to, to God. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in evangelization, I know Bishop Robert Barron talks about this a lot, is, you know, of the three transcendentals, truth, goodness, and beauty, in many ways, truth has been compromised in this relativistic world in which we live, where, where people don't recognize the truth or who's to say this was true and then goodness you know we we fall into that well are you judging me if i'm not good or whatever but beauty still seems to have an appeal to everyone and it Mm -hmm. kind of cuts through all these other isms Mm -hmm. and people when they recognize beauty and experience it there's this universal recognition of wonder
0: Mm -hmm. i do i i mean because this is a religious liberty podcast I, i do um want to bring it to that a little bit because I I sometimes think that uh, part of the hostility to uh, religious liberty in in politics can derive from a kind of fundamental lack of respect for the sacred in our in the secular culture and sometimes uh, we as people of faith can not I don't maybe going too far to say encourage the disrespect for the sacred but we might not help ourselves very much when our liturgical, when we let our liturgical culture um, deteriorate, or this sense of the transcendent that you're talking about, when we lose that ourselves, in different ways, uh, I think that then kind of that becomes a a problem in terms of our work to promote religious liberty. I wonder, um, what do you think? I mean, do you, do you see that this this kind of um, this lack of respect for the sacred in our liturg- liturgical culture that that there's a kind of a relationship there in some way i do i mean
2: getting back to this hyper secularized culture in which we live it's really it really um deprives man of that those deeper aspirations that he has that everybody has you know it's just part of our part of our our, our, our makeup our dna if you will and when that is not allowed or at least when that is de- when we, we don't have opportunities or outlets for that, we, we're really not living lives of of flourish of flourishing, of happiness. I always think of the, um, the 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 Israelites in Egypt when they were under Pharaoh's domination and they the principal issue there was religious freedom, right? Because they were not allowed to worship. Mm-hmm. And all they all what Moses wanted to do is just let us go out into the desert so we can worship our God. You know, let us go, and and he would not. You know, and then finally he did after the plagues, and they were. But that was the purpose of them leaving, is because they needed to be able to worship their God, mm-hmm. and um, and that's what um, I think, as far as in the context of religious liberty, even the very word itself, liberty, to, to be liberated uh, from 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 really what this world uh, gives us, because we have to be able to look beyond. Like I said before. Mm-hmm. And if we don't have those opportunities, either through liturgy or other ways, if our freedom to practice our faith is, is inhibited, then it deprives us of something that's very much a part of the human heart. Mm-hmm. So I think in that sense, maybe I'm kind of talking around it, but maybe in that sense, you know, liturgy and the flourishing of liturgy helps us to be more of who we're supposed to be, mm-hmm. you know, as human persons.
1: Well, and part of the debate about religious liberty has been that, you know, we're being challenged or the constriction really is, well, no, your religious liberty is just about how you worship. But it's so much more than that. It's about also making your, I mean, the liturgy really, the graces that we receive in the Eucharist help us to go out and proclaim the gospel in the public square. So it's, you know, religious liberty is so much more than just freedom to worship it's the freedom to live out your faith
2: Um, absolutely and to let that faith permeate every aspect of your life you know not to just keep it between the four walls of the church which many people would be happy if just we kept that faith you know in in, the boxed up in our churches but that's not who we are because when we talk about religion that goes to the very heart of, of who we are as a people and a culture and if we are not allowed to let that Spill out into the public square, with respect and dignity, and you know mutual understanding of other people who come from other faiths. I mean, that's the beauty of our country, right? We've got this melting pot of all kinds of believers, who um, should be allowed to express those beliefs with freedom and mm-hmm. protection of their rights, and um, and if we don't, then we're really we're less than what we should be.
0: Well, when you talk about uh, wonder uh, in respect to liturgy, uh, you know, that reminds me of of a piece that you wrote several years ago called Let Them Be Born in Wonder. uh, Reflecting a little bit on uh, your own mentor, John Sr. from the University of Kansas, Uh, the title itself says a lot. And you've kind of alluded to to some of what that's about. But I wonder if you might say a little bit more about um, kind of moving now to talking about education education and wonder, um, I know you, you, you probably spend a whole discussion just on the effect that, that um, studying with John Sr. had on your life, but just to briefly maybe say what that, what that was about. Sure,
2: yeah, that, that, that let them be born in wonder was the motto of this program I was in uh, as an undergraduate at the University of Kansas, which was led by not just John Sr., but two other professors, Dennis Quinn and Frank Nellick, and it was a humanities course two years, freshmen and sophomores, and we read the great books and um, it really led to my conversion to the Catholic faith because it was an introduction to me, for me, of of truth, goodness, and beauty as it's portrayed in great works of literature. But the program was much more than just an intellectual experience. It was an experience of the whole person because um, that that motto, let them be born in wonder, it was a Latin, nascantur and admirazione. And I remember as a high school senior, there was we had a college fair and there was brochures on the table and there was one brochure that had a picture of a college kid, obviously in the 70s, long hair, we all had long hair back then. <laughs> and uh, he was standing there in a field, a Kansas wheat field, looking up at the stars and just you could see the Big Dipper in the background. And there's the words, let them be born in wonder. And I opened up the page of this brochure, and there was this beautiful description of this course uh, of not only the great books, but also of poetry and memorization of poetry and of um, of dance and, and waltzing. We had At this program every year, there was a big pattern waltz that we would have, and so you would learn how to dance to these beautiful Strauss waltzes to teach the students manners, you know, and grace and... All of that, and it was kind of a combination of the the poetry, the literature, the friendships, most of all the friendships that were cultivated in that program, but also, um, you know, the fun and the play and the delight that really set my heart on fire to know more, which eventually led me to the Catholic Church. And getting back to education, that's what education should do. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's education should be should be an experience of delight and wonder curiosity. It shouldn't be a burden. It shouldn't be drudgery. It shouldn't be something that uh, young people dread to do. Um, And I think this is where it all comes into education. I think there needs to be a renewal of the imagination because, you know, we talked about that earlier. You know, we live in an, an, an era which I think there's a crisis, definitely a crisis of reason when people are not thinking rationally. And I think we need to address that because, uh, you know, common sense isn't too common these days. Mm-hmm. When we look around and see what's what's going on in the world, it's it's crazy. But I think even before we have a restoration of reason, we need a restoration of the of the imagination, mm-hmm. because and that starts really early on in education and to introduce children to these beautiful beautiful treasures of, of, of Western civilization and, and, and the tradition of education, Western education. Mm-hmm. Um, and through poetry, song, music, art, literature, history, all these things which inspire the human heart and really orient the imagination to goodness and truth and beauty. Mm-hmm. And if our imaginations are not filled with these truths, then we're going to be distorted. You know, when we, when, our, when we finally reach the age of reason, uh, it's no wonder that we're not able to 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 be able to understand how things really work and fit together.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, we kind of talked about this a little bit that uh, uh, that this what you're talking about t- right now about wonder. It's it speaks to me both uh, not just as a religious freedom advocate, but as a as a father. I have three sons, and our family is we're part of a group of homeschooling families that. I think what we're trying, we're trying to do some of the things that you're talking about. Uh, So the issue is part this. It's a personal thing for me. Um, But at the same time, I think that part of what we want to do in our religious freedom advocacy is very closely tied with what we do um, in education advocacy to try to advocate for um, for a kind of pluralism so that so that schools and families can can try out different Different things um, when there's this sense that something with the way we're educating our children um, has gone wrong. If they're just sort of locked into screens all the time, uh, that's that. Um, there's something wrong there. And I also think that on a on a more on a fundamental level, and you've kind of alluded to this already, that religious freedom uh, it's a civil right to be sure, but it has to do with our freedom to respond to God. I mean, that's that's like the What's at the core of it. And that freedom can be diminished if, if, with an education that truncates reason to what's technologically useful, that blunts the conscience, and that blinds us to true beauty. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering what, you know, I'd like to hear your response. Um, how do you see your passion for education uh, and more holistic education? How, how do you see that as connected with your concern um, about religious liberty? Again, if you look at the liberal
2: arts tradition, uh, again, there's that word again, liberal. Uh, liberty, liberal. It's, it's, it's an education which frees us. It frees us from um, falsehood. It frees us from error. It frees us from those things that uh, are less than human. That's what a liberal arts education is all about. And, um, you know, I think with regard to uh, religious liberty, um, that uh, we, we, we ever since, I think, probably the early part of the 20th century, a very kind of uh, intentional, utilitarian, and pragmatic philosophy has entered into our schools. That our schools really are designed for consumers, to produce consumers who will make contributions to the economy. So education has become really focused on preparing uh, people to enter into the economy, and to give them good skill sets to train them for good jobs and careers, and Mm -hmm. all those things. now granted th- th- that's important i'm not saying that you know everybody has to to enter into the society and make a contribution and to get a job and be trained at that job that's i'm not saying that that's that's wrong but the emphasis is wrong that really first and foremost education is to educate the whole person uh, body mind soul and spirit and uh, if that's done well especially at the elementary and secondary levels then those students who go into universities uh, and then specialize in a career path let's say or a particular discipline or degree in universities they have that foundation to build upon but now more so much more so than even when i was in elementary school and high school they're already, uh, you know, kids in the fifth and sixth grade, they're already having to map out their careers, you know, to think about, you know, how are you going to make a living? What is, what's mm-hmm. the job market going to be by the time you graduate from college? Kids shouldn't be thinking about those things. I mean, they should be, being, they should be learning about the, the beauty uh, and, and the wonder of, of the world mm-hmm. and, 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 and the, the great virtues that have been passed down to us. And there'll be time, you know, to, to focus on their careers, but this pragmatism, this utilitarian Mm -hmm. way, you know, since John Dewey and all those who have influenced the philosophy of education, you know, standardized testing, for example, all the standardized testing is really geared towards a career of some sort, Mm -hmm. you know, to make, to be, to be a good consumer and to be a good contributor and producer in, in our, in our global economy. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's where the philosophy of education has veered from really what it was really supposed to be to begin with.
0: I have to say, um, uh, before we um kind of before we move on that I I do love that you've mentioned the dance dancing piece. Um we are not dancers in my household. But, <laughs> but
1: there's more behind that comment, no, I think. No, no. no.
0: <laughs> well, it's just neither neither my wife nor I have just ever really this is not something we've ever been interested in. But we do have uh, some friends of ours that, that this is a big thing with the with what they want for their child because um, and one of the things this mother pointed out to us was that, you know, many different ethnic groups have kind of dances that are that you kind of associate with with that particular group. And so is, this is a great way to teach your child about different cultures is to introduce them to the dances of these particular mm-hmm. cultural groups. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is just something that because I don't normally think about. Music. In, well, I do think about music, but not dance quite so much. But when she pointed that out, I just thought, you know, they, that's. I just thought that was a, a a a good point and not something that I would have thought of. I think it can get overlooked, especially in the more pragmatic. Right. It, because dancing is in a way useless and in well, yeah. the good way, like in the positive way. Exactly, and,
2: and that's a good point. It's useless. I mean, a lot of, uh, and it should be. I mean, it should be for pure delight you know sometimes it, it dances is is described as poetry in motion mm-hmm. it's something that we can see and we use our bodies and it's again I think we live in a highly intellectualized world that mm-hmm. the brain or the mind is everything but really we're also body and so we need to use our bodies in beautiful ways and to a, a dance that's done very beautifully or even um, you know even even a, a an ethnic group that that has a particular traditional dance I love watching them and then the way they dress you know and the the the, the costumes you know that's all beautiful mm-hmm. and and we and we and again it pierces through all kinds of you know ideology and people recognize that's a beautiful that's a beautiful thing to mm-hmm. watch some someone
0: dance well, uh, we should talk a little bit about marriage since um you're you chair the subcommittee for the defense of marriage um and it's obviously very connected to the religious freedom debates um You know, I think we know that we shouldn't just be talking about our right to freedom. I mean, that's one of the things we've sometimes heard is it can seem when not necessarily us, the USCCB, but just religious freedom advocates in general. It can seem that um, there's too much focus on just our right to have freedom, but that the the rights, as we like to say at the conference, you know, they're paired with duties Mm -hmm. and that there's a, a duty to talk about the truth of marriage. I wonder how you think we might do a better job um, promoting the truth about marriage. It's kind of a big question, but um, but yeah, I'd love to hear your insight on that. How we can promote uh, promote what marriage is really about? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, that's uh, really what we're trying to do in our subcommittee on the promotion and defense of marriage. And um, you know, one of the ways we do that is by showing the beauty of marriage. Getting back to the beauty and to show how this is really God's plan for human flourishing that people and when you when you when you experience a family or a marriage that um, that really is uh, flourishing it's something that attracts you You I want to experience that happiness too and and all marriages should experience that happiness now because we're fallen creatures and life is difficult we all have to carry our crosses so you know, there's no such thing as, you know, a marriage that doesn't have any difficulties or challenges. They all do. You know, everyone does because you're living with another person and, um, and we're fallen creatures and we hurt each other. Sometimes we hurt each other, hurt the people who are closest to us because of our, our own woundedness. But, um, you know, in the promotion and defense of marriage that we do, we try to show the beauty of marriage and the goodness of marriage but also, I think, again, getting back to this almost philosophical, I don't want to be too philosophical, but this kind of hyper-intellectualized world, which is removed from reality. And like you say, we're in front of our screens all the time. What I think that has done is it kind of has removed us from the, the, the reality or the givenness of our human nature so that we think in our minds that we can define or redefine Things like marriage or gender, or all these other things that we hear so much today, um, to be what we want it to be, instead of being what it was designed to Um, be—the givenness of things, you know—the reality of the way we are created, male and female. That was the name of the—we we we, we issued an ecumenical statement just before Christmas, a beautiful one pager, simple, um, kind of illustration of, of. created male and female, and the beauty of the complementarity of male and female, and how God designed male and female as a beautiful creation made for one another. And um, so I think that this idea that we can somehow redefine these very um, fundamental realities and truths about the human person and about the world, um, is a, a, a complete um, deviation from from you know what God has ordered in the world, mm-hmm. and and and, um, and I'm not sure exactly how that goes back to our freedom question, but it, it, it is it is it's, it's a lack of recognition of the, of the givenness of things.
1: Well, it's interesting because there are ties to you know this uh, to and natural family planning and respecting the way that God created a woman's body and a man's body and. So you know, and it's also an interesting time because we have so much going on—the Me Too movement against you know mm-hmm. sexual harassment of women—and and really Humanae Vitae talks a lot. You know, the fiftieth uh, anniversary is coming up this summer, and it talks a lot about uh, you know tr- respecting what God's design is uh, of the of of the body and the ramifications if we don't.
2: Right.
1: Uh, Live according to that design. So it's an interesting time to to kind of be drawn and and even the connection to the body as as a, you know, is it utilit for utilitarian purposes or is it to express Mm -hmm. God's beauty through things like Mm -hmm. dance?
2: Right. Does the body have a language of its own, which is uh, part of its very makeup? Uh, And of course, John Paul II has the whole, you know, nuptial language that he brings out of the scriptures, which is really the language of the body. The body speaks a language itself by the very way that we're created. You know? And we have, to, we, have to, we have to be able to speak that language, too, and be able to understand that language and not sort of reconstruct it in a certain sense to be the language that we have in our head or that we think we, knew, we know or right.
0: think things to be. I, mean, I think One way I think it relates to freedom is just there's a kind of... If you think of freedom as only license then um, then there's this idea that you can rebel against nature or, or that, that we can redefine things and um, still be happy. Um, and I think that part of what – I mean, I get the sense that people aren't happy uh, in the, the way that things are. I mean, I'm, I'm not even that old, but whenever I, – I, it seems to me that dating – I get the sense that dating has changed a lot uh, since uh, since my wife and I were dating – and I also get the sense that uh, the the people involved don't really like the way things are. I mean, there's not really a lot of romance. Is one thing I that's that was especially when when my wife was in graduate school. Uh, we were on on the campus a little bit more a little bit more and get to know some students because I worked at the bookstore there and they they didn't seem to like. Their what they felt like was their freedom, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and mm. I, I don't know. I mean, I, do you notice that because you have a major university in your in your diocese, the University of Nebraska? Right. Um, I mean, I just wonder how we can. I, I think this goes to all, relates to all this talk about beauty. That even the idea of of, a, of romance be, and between uh, and the way women, men and women relate to one another. Um on the one hand, there's this kind of insistence on you know our kind of right to to have to license just or mm-hmm. be able to do whatever we want and then even with all that freedom i I don't think people like it very much yeah. I, don't, I, don't think, uh, I don't think
2: people are happier really that um and and it's and it's been proven I mean that psychologists and sociologists say that people generally are not as happy as they once were so the promise of this happiness with sexual liberation and and the, the sexual revolution, we, look at it, we're not happier than we were um, before that mm-hmm. the, the, you know, 50 years ago. People are not generally happier. And I think, uh, and I spend a lot of time with university students. I love being college students because I think uh, you know, that's when my life changed and I know how important those years are and I spent a lot of time at our Newman Center. We have a flourishing Newman Center at the University of Nebraska. And one of the things I've noticed is this inability to form friendships, mm-hmm. real friendships. You know um, what is friendship you know and I ask the students that we you now, because I think part of it is part of it is is the technocratic world in which we live you know social media is part of it you, you you're sort of you can create your own profile of of who, who you are and you can in your in your not really in contact with other people so it's a self enclosed sort of self referential world as Pope Francis talks about so often and that human interaction I mean I was reading the other day that um, the, in a survey that young people would rather stay home and text their friends mm-hmm. on a Saturday night than to go out with them.
1: Yeah, yeah, less effort.
2: Yeah, less <laughs> They can sit there and they can just have fun all night texting. And so what what that happens is you don't you have to learn how to be a friend, you know, mm-hmm. and you and you have to learn what friendship. Now you may have five hundred, thousand friends on Facebook, but you know to have really, do you have two or three best friends? Mm-hmm. And I ask kids that, do you have a best friend? You know, and sometimes they have to think, and they they really don't have a best friend. I think well, growing up, I always had a now the best friend wasn't always the same person. Sometimes in high school, I had a best friend, and in college, I had a best friend. And I have a few friends that I have today that go back all the way to my high school years. Yeah. But that ability to, to make a friend and to know what friendship is is really important. There's a new book coming out this spring by Rebecca Fresh called "Can We Be Friends," and she really talks about this importance of friendship because if we can't form friendships with one another how can we form a friendship with God mm-hmm. and that's really the that's really the friendship with Jesus is the most important thing and we have to be able to spend time with our friends and spend time with Jesus in order to really get to know him and him to get to know us just like any friendship so I think that's a real crisis the crisis of what is friendship and that goes into romance because really husbands spouses should mm-hmm. be best friends you Absolutely. should marry your best friend yeah. you know, somebody that you're totally trusting and you can open up and be vulnerable. But kids don't have that, so they keep everything inside. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what makes them lonely, isolated, and ultimately unhappy. And high rates of depression and even suicide,
1: mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. are
2: a result of that. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, uh, Bishop Conley, I wonder if, uh, to wrap us up, uh, we could maybe say something about the other side of some of the crises we've talked about and talk about hope. Um, we've been talking a bit about— and. Uh, in, in, uh, recent episodes of this podcast about uh, persevering in hope as we witness to a culture of life and to the beauty of marriage. And since it's Lent and it's a time that we Christians set aside to attend to our spiritual lives, I wonder if you might recommend just a couple of practices um, to us that that you have found can be helpful in, uh, in growing in hope. That's a very good question. I mean, I do think there's a lot of
2: hope out there. I see it all the time. I think people, one of the things about a culture in which we live which becomes so secular and so dark in many ways we look at the evil and violence around us and whether we're talking about abortion or terrorism or these mass killings in, you know, uh, in our schools. I mean there's a lot of violence every day. Abuse you know, mistreatment of women you know, all kinds of things. I think one of the um, flip sides of that is that people say there's got to be something better. And, um, and that's where I think the truth comes in that we if we can show that there is something better and when, when the light goes off and you see it, especially young people, they, they realize this is it. Yeah. I don't have to go down this road. There's a better path that I can follow. And there's where the hope is. And I think that, um, you know, that, 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 um, we, we need to stop and sort of disengage to be able to see that. So that's where I think, and I've been talking a lot about this lately is, We need more silence in our world. We need, and Cardinal Sarah has written a wonderful book called The Power of Silence.
1: I just bought it, and I'm reading it. It's wonderful.
2: And I love the subtitle, Against the Dictatorship of Noise, (laughs) because noise penetrates every aspect of our life, and unless we can disengage from that, even for a moment, um, we're going to get caught up to that. We're not going to have the time to reflect on what is really true and good and beautiful. Blaise Pascal you know 400 years ago the great philosopher said you know the the greatest the greatest, um, the greatest uh, dilemma in in the world and this was 500 years ago is the inability for us to be alone in our rooms the inability of us for be alone in our rooms if we can't be alone by ourselves we always need to be stimulated you know, we're never going to develop these wonderful, gifts that we that god has given us so i think silence to get back to that silence eucharistic adoration is one of the places we can go to because we can at least be reasonably certain that we're not going to be interrupted there but so if we turn our phones
0: off yes yes um
2: and and that's why i i'm a big proponent of eucharistic adoration because not only does it remind us of the transcendence which we talked about at the beginning Mm -hmm. that there is god and that i'm not i'm not him you know and that i need i need to be facing god and thinking about these permanent things but also it it, c- it creates physical. I mean, you know, science, silence around us, where we can really hear ourselves and hear ourselves think, and hear God speak to our hearts in the in the language of silence. You know, Saint John of the Cross said God's first language is silence, mm-hmm. and we need to learn that language first, the language of silence, before we learn anything else. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, thank you so much. That is very helpful. I really um, and I appreciate you taking the time out because I know you're busy. Uh, we've got a lot going on today, um, but thank you so much for, for coming and sharing with us. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Mary. It's been thank delightful. Thank you, Bishop Conley. Uh, this is Aaron Matthew Weldon.
1: And I'm Mary McCluskey. Thank you for joining us for the First Freedom Podcast.